life and science and the things that are neither uh, that are not just work that but still affect our lives. And I'm really delighted today to be talking to someone who's been a very inspiring colleague and an amazing colleague to be you know at UCL with. Um, Professor Valerie Hazan, or Val Hazan. Um, hello. Hello, very pleased to be here. So, Val, can we, um, just to sort of start, could you tell me the first time you can remember thinking about something that you might realise now kind of means, oh, that's, that was why I was interested in science, or that was a, that's why I ended up studying what I studied? Well, it's pretty late, really. I mean, uh, at university um, in Salford, I was sharing a house with uh, friends, one of these friends had a baby. And in my final year at university, uh, the baby Michael was about one, one and a half. So a really fascinating time for language development. Mm. And, you know, I was just doing modern languages there, you know, it was nothing scientific. Uh, but that really got me interested into, you know, language development. And in fact, that course did have uh, a very, very good acoustics phonetics course. Mm. So I had done acoustics. And I guess, you know, that sort of set me off doing a master's in linguistics and mm-hmm. then and then a PhD. And you, you have quite a multilingual background, don't you? You were doing. I were do. You, were you yeah, doing modern yeah. languages because that was part of your life, or? I mean, it was a kind of accidental career, really. You know, I yes, I grew up in France. My father was uh, one of the first generation of conference interpreters, in fact, and worked for the uh, military base of NATO. Um, oh. Not the one in shape. Shape, right? yes. Yeah. Shape. My mum and were there. Oh, yes, I knew there was a connection. <laughs> so, Not an interpreter. No, no. So I was a shape baby, and um, shape was in France, and then General de Gaulle threw um, shape out in when we were eight or nine. So the whole community, uh, a very large number of people, moved to the small mining town in Belgium. Um, and it was really like living in a bubble, you know, there was a shaped village. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, with the hospitals and schools and cinemas and, and yeah, everything was cheap or free. And, and you know, you shared this village with people from many different nationalities. So. It was very international, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. So for the time, you know, it was quite an unusual upbringing. Really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we grew up bilingually. All, all our studies uh, were done in French. But at home we spoke English with my mother. Uh, French with my twin sister, French with my father, English with my brothers, you know, mm. yeah. So, I suppose, yeah. So, so you, so you kind of come into, into science via languages. Yeah, there was never again a conscious decision. You know, yeah. we finished school very early. We were two years ahead, so you know we had to make decisions about the future based on you know very knowing very little about what we really wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and being bilingual and, uh, you know, uh, there was a very good interpreter school um, at the university in, in Mons, in, in local town. So it was just a default, yeah. <laughs> you know, a very default um, decision, really. So I guess I never, I mean, I did, I did sciences, of course, at school, but I was never particularly good or particularly bad at anything, I yeah. guess. So that was made it very difficult to really think, well, OK, what do I want to do with my life, you know? Mm. So... Yeah, translator, you know, in the common market in Brussels was the kind of pretty default yeah. condition, really. Yeah, an obvious way to go. Yeah, yeah. So where did, where did you do your master's? Uh, I did my master's in Reading, and I think I went there because I think Paul Fletcher was there, and, you know, I'd been reading about language development work they were doing. Um, 
And at the time you got personal PhD scholarships, so mm. it wasn't attached to a department. Yeah. And I think I'd been inspired by a paper of Adrian Forsin's, um, Simon and Forsin, or Forsin and Simon, on the development of categorical perception in children. And just to say, so it was, it was Adrian Forsin then, was he the head of the phonetics department at UCL? Was that He was the head of the experimental phonetics, phonetics part, yeah. Right, yeah. So then decided to come to UCL. And just very briefly, could you just very briefly mention what the significance of categorical perception is? Yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, okay, so basically speech uh, is made up of acoustic patterns. Uh, there's a lot of variability in speech, so um, from one person to the other and within different speaking styles that we use. And yet we have to, I guess, give a label to a sound that we hear. Mm. And we use these acoustic patterns and categorize, have to categorise them, so make a decision about which sound we've, we've heard. Um, and we tend to do this in a very binary way in some way, you know, mm. that, uh, uh, yeah, we, we associate particular acoustic patterns to particular sounds in, and have to do so even when the sounds are ambiguous. Mm. So we tend to, in a way, not focus on the detail of the sound and the difference between the sound, but focus on what makes them similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of way of grouping information. Grouping, that, exactly, yeah. yeah, categorising. And it was, it was a big, big development in sort of the... It was a big thing in the, yeah. yes, let's say early 80s, let's go back to where we're talking about now. <laughs> yes, because there was a whole link with, you know, motor theory and different theories of speech perception mm. and... Um, so Adrian had done this work on the development of how how this ability to categorise develops in children for um, sounds such as purr and burr, the voice in contrast, differences in voicing. And I was interested, I don't know why, in fricatives. So it sounds like fsh, and how categorisation developed for fricatives. Mm. So that's what I came to UCL to do. So you come to UCL for a PhD. Did you ever really leave? Did you have no, well, no, 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 no. It's never a terrible left. tyranny, isn't it? It's a very hard well, place to leave. Well, you know... It, you know, it's a, it, it's a blessing and a, and a curse indeed, you know, mm. because, in fact, yes, at a later stage in my um, long story here, you know, I, I got a lectureship very, very young, you know, I hadn't even finished my PhD, and here you are with a permanent position in the best university, you know, in the country, nay, the world for, you know, for the, for, for the work that I was doing. Yeah. And, you know, how could you ever leave, really? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. very, very hard. It makes it very hard to leave. So you, what did you do? Your was was Adrian your PhD supervisor? He was, yes. And um, in fact, I worked on fricatives for about a year and a half. And at the time, we were doing very um, manually intensive syntheses, so you know, created artificial versions of of words. Um, and it was really just very difficult to do that for fricatives. In fact. Yeah, yeah. So you know, the idea was to try and sound like a natural word, but ended up sounding like you know, shh. Ooh, you know, yeah. rather than shoe or whatever. Yeah. Um, so then I had the opportunity to, to switch gears somewhere and um, Adrian was starting a project on the development of speech in, in deaf children uh, in collaboration with a school in Southport. And, um, yeah, so I got involved from the beginning of that mm-hmm. project and ended up really finishing my PhD yeah. on that topic. And what kind of things were you looking at? Well, it, it was a fascinating project, which I don't think has been replicated since. Um, this was a school which had a very oral sort of tradition. Yeah. So very much emphasis on listening, on hearing aid fitting. 
um, with a very inspirational head, uh, headmistress Morag Clark. And we decided to follow a group of unselected group of children um, over a three, four year period and mm. see how they their ability to categorize sounds developed um, over a period between the age of about nine and 13. Mm -hmm. So we would go up to the school every three months and um, collected you know, yeah. longitudinal data. Uh, Evelyn Abbotton was looking at their speech production. I was doing the work on speech perception and uh, Adrian was doing also some work on their hearing. Um, so we found that you know they were developing obviously uh, with a, a delay and that the, the stages that they followed in their development of categorical perception was similar to that of children with typical hearing, but yeah. just delayed, yeah. but also coloured by, by the hearing loss. So yeah. certain acoustic patterns, uh, which would be very much what kids with normal hearing would be using, would not be accessible to these children. Yeah. So patterns that were less important for... Um, in normal development became, you know, the key patterns. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it was a fascinating time, yes, really. Yes, very, yeah. very interesting. Um, and um, so you get towards the end of your PhD and you've already mentioned you, went, you started a, yes, a lectureship. Yes, yes, so that was crazy. So that was the other accidental event, really. Uh, we'd started this new degree, at, uh, BSc in Speech Sciences, and um, a lecturer had been recruited to teach uh, speech perception. And uh, she left at a month's notice, oh, just yeah. before you know the course was due to. And be it's taught. a new course, yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. So I was brought in first of all on a temporary lectureship to quickly, yes, <laughs> you know, be a week ahead of teaching, you know. <laughs> um, and then you know they advertised a permanent position, and I got it. So this would never happen no. now, as we know. No. Um, so here was I with no publications and not even a PhD. And how did you find that as a new lecturer? So it's, I mean, I know things have changed, but you all have always been expected to publish. Did you yeah, find that yeah. was, what was it like kind of starting to develop your own research profile while teaching? There was, I mean, I think there was less pressure then, to be fair. And, you know, I did publish. We published, you know, the PhD work and mm. um, uh, quite early on started getting grants <coughs> very regularly. So I've been continuously funded for 30 years, I wow. think, actually. Um, but, you know, it, 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 there wasn't the emphasis on quantity <laughs> that, yeah. that, that there is now, and there was really not that much pressure uh, to publish. I mean, there was obviously for, for promotions, but I don't think mm. we were really advised that much about promotions, or, you know, maybe some people were more targeted than I was, but, you yeah. know, it wasn't really a focus of my work at the time. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, you know, in the early years I was finishing my PhD, teaching new courses, you know, without Already teacher plenty. training, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, and then publishing, and I think my first paper probably was in 73, or, no, wait a minute, 83, 83, no, let's not go back too far now, but yeah, you know, somehow you made it work. And how did you find, kind of, um, navigating, like, the... Well, I suppose there's, there's many different strands to life, but mm -hmm. you've got your kind of you've got your your job at UCL, which is yeah. it's a lectureship, and so there's a requirement to do teaching. How you know if we think about that separately from the research, and I know it doesn't really work mm -hmm. that way, but you, we're a university that is expected to be there are lecturers or people who are research actors, yeah, yeah, so there sure. will be the two. Mm. Um, 
How have you found kind of navigating a career that's always had this, you know, like a central role for teaching as part of it? I suppose if you haven't run yourself in a different condition, it might be harder to say, but yeah. and as much as you as have overtly thought about it, what were your... I think, I mean, I've always done all three, you know, because yeah. I was always active, even before being head of department, I was always active at the university in committees. I was, mm. I think, the non, non-professorial... Um, representative on the uh, promotions committee which was university wide you know yeah. so it was the provost the deans and little old me when I was you know probably in my mid-20s you know um, so I, I've always done in a way teaching research administration with you know a yeah. fairly even distribution I yeah. guess you know in all three and have you found it useful to have that kind of um getting involved in the admin because it Admin always gets a bad rap. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's what we always complain about. But actually, there are some real advantages to kind of being part of the world where you're seeing some things discussed that you then might experience at the mm, front mm. end of things when, with, you know, in terms of student contact. But it's, yeah. you know, it's sometimes very helpful to have seen how these things, are, you know, where the ideas are coming from, what the pressures are on higher up in the system. Yeah, and I think, you know, that was the great thing. Obviously, UCL was a small institution at the time and, you know, you got to meet people from, you know, all, all different faculties. Yeah. And um, I was on the Equal Ops Committee and I can't remember, you know, a number of these kind of things. And, yeah, I, I think it, it it was an interesting part. It didn't feel like admin as such. I yeah. think it was an interesting yeah. part of the job, actually. Yeah, yeah to it's find the out, job, yeah. You know, how UCL worked, you know, who mm. the main players were. And, um, and it is very easy um, to be in a sort of, you know... it. Because of the, the physical way that we're set up yeah, as a university, yeah, bubble, that's true. you can yeah, just yeah. Mm. spend your entire job never really meeting anybody from any other yeah, part of yeah, UCL, yeah. even necessarily the part of your own division. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. So it is actually really, really helpful to have these experiences and kind of make these contacts, isn't it? Yeah, oh, totally. And um, um, as head of department, I think, again, one of the joys that you might discover... <laughs> You know, is interacting with people from outside yeah. the department and yeah. working with other heads of department and yeah. sharing experiences and yeah. So. And how how did you find moving into a head of department role? Well, that was yeah. I mean, it was challenging. I um, so I became head of department for the first time in two thousand. So I was in my I guess early forties. Um, I'd been in the department for twenty years already, right? Mm. Um, but some of my colleagues were professors when there was a student there you know so there was a lot of navigating you know diplomacy and working together and and, um you know it was a big department really well relatively yeah I mean bigger than the current research departments um so no I mean it was exciting having been at UCL for so long and in the department for so long to you know to have a an opportunity to Mm. to make changes to Mm. work with people I, I'd certainly say that's the part of the job I hadn't quite expected to enjoy as much. Mm. It's actually really uh, satisfying to be able to sort of do positive things yeah, exactly. and kind of contribute yeah. to the working life in a way yeah. that is not, yeah. you know, you don't quite realise, but of course someone has to do that, otherwise lots of things don't yeah. work. And it's, yeah. I thought it was a sort of, uh, you know, maybe a sort of slightly gruelling experience, but you get your reward in heaven, as my father used to say. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's very enjoyable. Well, there's a gruelling yeah. aspect as well. But, but, you know, working with people... I mean, I, yeah. I guess you have to like working with people because that's the thing
felt a natural thing to do, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Were you the first um, woman who was out of department? Yeah, I was, yeah, 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 yeah. And probably the youngest, I would think. Yeah. 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 No pressure, then. No. <laughs> and there was a time of big change, because, you know, there's a lot of restructuring going on at university. Yeah. So when I started as head, we were in the Faculty of Arts and Humanities. Then we switched to Life Sciences. And then towards the end, you know, there was a major restructuring where the Faculty of Brain Sciences was formed, yeah. and we joined with psychology to form the di- Division of Psychology and Language Science. Yeah. And that was a big, big change, because huge, that it? was the end of the Department of Phonetics and Linguistics, which, you know, had a very proud history. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people had worked there for many, many, in that department for many years, were very attached to the name, to mm. the history of it. And having to navigate, you know, and so was I, to be fair. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so having to, you know, manage all those changes. Yeah, that's a lot to yeah. work with. So that was a decade that was really heavy for me because yeah. on the home front, you know, we had kids very late as well, so the kids were very young at that point. Yeah. And um, I was I had several research grants. You know, so it, was, yes. it was all happening. Yeah. I was getting Fairly. involved in international committees and all that. So yeah. that was really a very stressful decade that's it would you have any um it doesn't have to be advice but kind of you know ideas of some of the ways that you found for coping with that um, stress <laughs> i don't think i cope very well really i don't know yeah it's hard yeah it's difficult i mean i think obviously there are many challenges for uh, if we think about you know the link between family life and work um for uh for women who in the early part of their career, if you like, you know, have children and are still establishing their career. And I suppose this is a situation where I was mid-career, had already quite a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And then, you know, we had to fit in, you know, a family life and children. Yeah. Uh, at a point where I was used to working many, many hours. Yeah. And, yeah. And I carried on, to be fair, you know. Yeah. So. You do, I mean, it is, <laughs> I think the thing that changed for me and it took me, a, I really took this quite hard, was being able, I used to write, I had a very kind of like formal approach mm. to writing where I would come in to work. I still can't quite believe I used to like routinely be arriving at work around 10 o'clock in the morning, but I'd get in yeah. around 10 and I'd sort of fiddle-faddle around and get things done, probably go to the gym at lunchtime, and mm-hmm. then after lunch I'd start writing and then I would spend as long as I needed to writing. That was how, if I had something to write, that was the day, yeah. that would be the yeah. shape of the day. And I would write, you know, well into the evening about if I needed to and then and I had the time and that just goes that's gone I can't do that anymore my yeah. day starts much earlier and it ends much earlier and I could go back and do work in the evenings but I don't I like to not to you yeah, know yeah, so yeah, yeah. I have had to learn that if you've got 20 minutes when you could be writing you yeah no yeah. long run up <laughs> yeah. at it you've got to do the writing then that's yeah. the time that's the time you have and I mean my situation was rather different I had to you know Admit that you know we. Uh, I mean, uh, my partner's a woman, and we were both mums at home, and um, she took really the primary role, you know. Um, and so I was in a situation where obviously I was not in a way fully responsible for you know having to rush off to pick up children and whatever. But in a way, even though I had less of the childcare responsibility, there was always that immense feeling of guilt. Mm. So. You know, as a head of department, I was in the department a lot and would work long, longish hours, but yeah. would still feel that guilt, you know, yeah. if I was not returning home till whatever, seven or, yeah. you know. So, 
either you look after the children or you're guilty if you don't. It's, I think it's, it's just hard. Yeah, it's yeah. simply hard being yeah. a, it's hard being a working parent. Full yeah. stop. Yeah. And I suppose that one of the things that is true that I think is something that is a real benefit of academic life is there is a little bit more flexibility around that than yeah. in many jobs. So mm-hmm. um, I've you know kind of encountered other mums because I live and work you know all around the same bit of London. Yeah, yeah. Um, like women who were, had babies when I had my son who were like working for jobs that were simply no flexibility at all. Mm, they had to yeah, come back yeah. to work then. Mm. A lot of them just lost their jobs because mm. they went back to work and just immediately for a reason was found to fire them. Yeah. And then they were kind of running around trying to find new jobs. Or there was, they just had to be in these times, so they had to... No choice about how they manage things. They had to get a nanny. Then mm, all their money yeah. was going to pay yeah, for a yeah, nanny. Yeah, and I thought, yeah. well, you know, I have got some... I've got mm-hmm. some wiggle. It's not easy. That's never yeah, going to be easy. Yeah. But there is more. F- there, no one ever looks at a paper and says, "Well, it was written at the weekend. It doesn't count." You yeah, know, yeah, there yeah. was. But there was some. Mm. There was some. There was. There was more flexibility. You have. You have more say. I think over you, how your day goes as an academic than many jobs do. And I. I know that just because yeah. there are many jobs where it's like. No, for sure. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. it doesn't make it doesn't make it easy. None of it's easy, and no, you do feel rotten. Yeah. And also, I was a I was an invisible parent in a way because legally, you know, I mean, my partner was a biological mum, and you know, we're talking yeah. the period before civil partnerships. Yeah. So, in the eyes of UCL, I was a you know I was not a parent. Oh, that's <laughs> so. How has that changed at all? Has that actually then well, there's been improvements? Yes, yes, because I got really involved uh, both with UCL with a group, obviously as part of a group, but you know, with others at UCL and with a union. The what was it? time the AUT yeah in terms of you know really um, making sure that the definition of parenthood uh, uh, you know was inclusive yeah because that's a massive deal it is and you know yeah of course so and UCL was flexible to be fair you know and Mm. um, I had access to the UCL nursery and you know yeah brought a son there and um, um I got very involved in in the pen the idea, the issue of pensions because that again was yeah. A very, can, can we just yeah. explain that a bit? Because again, there's a, there was a there was a big thing that you did here. This yeah. was a big achievement. Yeah, yeah. So the pension system used to be that if you were married, yeah, you would get an automatic. You would be yeah. uh, your your partner was part of your pension. Yeah, yeah. So if you mm-hmm. expired, the pension would go to them. Yeah. Is that am I right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But if yeah. you weren't married, then you could you know you could. Uh, uh, Leave your what's the word? You could declare if you like who you, who you wanted to be the beneficiary, but yeah. it was um, the trustees uh, of the pension scheme had the ultimate decision. So yeah. you know this was just an indicative, you know. So it didn't oblige them to do anything. No, and I think even though even after the changes, I think it was still formally you know uh, the, the the trustees' decision, but there was much yeah. more yeah you know, much yeah. stronger. Uh, much stronger indication that you know if you declared a you know same sex uh, partner that that would be taken as a yeah. you know, equivalent if you like to. So pre civil yeah. partnerships or marriage being possible, yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody who was in a gay relationship at UCL was in the situation where you didn't necessarily have any possibility. Well, you had no guarantee. You had yeah. no guarantee. That's right. You know, and if you're in the main wager, you know, it's a very important uh, yeah. consideration, really. So how did you go about changing that? What did you do? Because I, I, I can see that can't you can't just march in and say, well, we think you should do this differently. No, well, you know, obviously both UCL and the AUT were very receptive at the time. There was quite a lot of work on equal opportunities and um, and um, within the union. Um, and again, you know, I'm not 
at all a natural activist, right? But somehow, you know, got involved with the, what was then LGB um, uh, committee in the union. And, you know, we just mm. then, you know, looked at what seemed to be priorities. Yeah. And that was one of them, really. So that's a, I mean, that's that's a huge thing that you've achieved within UCL. Is it? Does it something that's rolled out across the UK? Or was this? Well, yes, a, it was. It was the, you know, the US. Well, what was previous to the USS pension scheme? So it was a national yeah, pension scheme, yeah. and UCL just, you know, that was uh, part of what UCL was part yeah, of. So, so that's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't a UCL based. I mean, at UCL, we were working working more towards, you know, um, equal opportunities and and the terminology used in various yeah. regulations for parental leave and whatever. Yeah. You know. But again, I didn't formally qualify for parental leave. Well, there wasn't parental leave, I guess. No. It was just paternity <laughs> leave at the time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so uh, these are things also that were happening in that so that's, decade. That's a huge you know. amount of work. <laughs> yeah. So, you had a department, lots of research going on, yeah. doing your teaching, and also leading sort of national changes. Not leading, <laughs> not leading, but, you know, being part of, yeah. you know, at least, you know, yeah. That's brilliant, though. But that's that a real. Felt important. Yeah, well, I think it'll manifest the enormous. <laughs> Find time to t- is this something else that you like spending your time doing? <laughs> I know you ran away to sea. Can you tell I, us about I, that? I, yeah, so again, I have this incredibly, incredibly patient um, uh, partner um, who realizes that you know I, I had this you know very, very stressful job and is you know has always said, Listen, you know, feel free, go off, do, do what you need to do, I'll be here, you know, look after the kids. So that's really very much a blessing as well, to be fair. And I got involved in uh, in crewing on tall ships. <laughs> Hang on, that's crewing on tall ships. Can you yeah. define uh, tall ships? Okay, so tall ships are like these pirate ships, you know. Oh, like lots big, of yeah, lots of sails. Sails, yeah, and, yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, you can actually go and sign up as crew, as volunteer crew. So you're actually running the ship, in effect. Obviously, there's yeah. some professional crew around as well. But, you know, you do watches and you're, having, you're putting sails up and down, you're um, steering the, the ship, etc., etc. Cleaning, a lot of cleaning. And um, yeah. where, where have the tall ships taken you? Where have you taken well, the tall ships? Yeah. No, no, the, the most exciting trip, really, and that was the longish trip. So uh, I was before I took over for the second time as head of department, so it was a bit of a carrot to have a bit of time off for that. Mm. Um, went from Brazil, from Recife, all the way up to northern Canada, to Halifax. Wow. And it was at the time of the, um, of the World Cup, Football World Cup in, in Brazil, actually. So we started off there. So it's, you know, crossing the equator, crossing the Caribbean, Bermuda. Yeah. Through the triangle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> yeah so, and it's amazing to be at sea. You know, again, when you have a very stressful job, you know, to be at sea when you're you don't see land for weeks and you yeah. know there's no real communication it, it was just amazing really and do you find that um i don't know there are so many different reasons to do things that take you out of your normal yeah. you know yeah. like sitting at a desk or doing things at home so um and sometimes i find that it's as much kind of meditative as yeah, it is yeah, yeah. Well, uh, good yeah. to you know like yeah. for your body to be doing exercise for and things sure. is it is it kind of does it fulfill that role for you or is it well, imagine being at sea is totally meditative. Right? Yeah. You know, you're spending hours. You know, when you're not on watch, literally staring at, you know, yeah. <laughs> staring at waves and that nothingness. And you yeah. know, you're up in the middle of the night. You know, uh, from midnight to four in the morning. You know, in the pitch dark. Because someone's got to be doing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a lot of time to think. Um, um, 
did I think of that work? Probably not so no. well, but <laughs> <laughs> you're allowed to. I think it's forgivable. Yeah. Did you see anything like interesting at sea? Is there lots of stuff going on out there? Every sort, you know, does does wildlife appear or oh yeah, or yeah, sea yeah. monsters? Yeah. Or... No, no, you do see you know whales and dolphins and yeah, and, uh, but sometimes remarkably little, you know, for weeks. Yeah, I, mean, I think there was a period of two weeks where we were really we saw nothing, you know, and then we arrived in a small uh, bay in uh, the Grenadines, and we all. You know, swam to swam to the coast, and there was a rum shack. <laughs> it was really like you know, <laughs> actual quite, paradise. Yeah, it really yes. was. It really was. We yeah. just sat there for hours. You know, it felt like we discovered land. You know, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we named this land. Yes, yes really. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. No, so really amazing experiences. I'm very, very lucky. I love traveling and being an academic. You mm. know, great thing is also you you travel. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I. I enjoy being going about the business of travelling mm-hmm. just as a thing to be on course for doing. I find it yeah. pleasing to be yeah, setting off yeah, on a yeah. journey, even if it's like getting on a train. Mm-hmm. I like going to airports. I like, oh, okay. I like right. being on route. Right. <laughs> I'd like to be there. Well, to, the route <laughs> Most people don't enjoy what I'm agree with me on this. Actually. Yeah. I actually like the travelling bit as well. But, this, um, but I managed to combine... Um, so I... I've been doing some work with collaborators in Sydney, and I absolutely love Sydney. Uh, but I managed to sail from uh, Fiji to Sydney <laughs> and wow. arrived on the tall ship <laughs> to, to spend two, three weeks working on, you know, on um, spontaneous speech interaction oh, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so that was a sort of great entrance to Sydney, really. Yeah. And how has your research interests kind of evolved as you've been, sort of, you know, of your academic career? And, uh, no, they, they they have involved a lot, really, actually, especially, you know, there was a real break about 10, 11 years ago where they, I really switched direction. Um, so I did this kind of very analytic work for many, many years, you know, looking at these very you know, precise acoustic patterns, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and did work on with children, children hearing loss, uh, children with dyslexia, bilinguals, you know, mm-hmm. but always very much an analytic approach and um, I had a real shock when I was working with a colleague from Spain actually and I was visiting the lab in Barcelona and one of his PhD students was looking at spontaneous speech and this was I don't know 20 years ago or something and I'd realised I'd never actually looked at spontaneous speech. It's extraordinary isn't it spontaneous speech. Yeah and it was a total revelation because all these little acoustic patterns I'd been so carefully analysing and looking at and they weren't even there, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. half of the, you know, syllables missing, sounds missing. And I really, that was the beginning of, I suppose I could have given up altogether at that point, you know, thinking 20 years of my life, you know. <laughs> but then I it doesn't take away from what you can learn from the extremely well, highly performed speech, but it, is, it does make but, you realise you... But more and more I really yeah. felt we must be looking, you know, at really speech and communication and at real mm. speech. And, you know, it's the same thing when we were doing studies with um, children with dyslexia because, you know, we were finding that, you know, there was the whole question of whether they had perceptual deficits and whether that contributed to difficulties yeah. in learning to read. Um, and, you know, we were, we were finding in a way, first of all, that it was really only a subset of children, you know, even if you got group effects, you know, when you yeah. looked at um, um, individual children, it was only a few who were be- below norm, if you like. Mm. But also there was a very strong link with, with attention. So um, we interspersed kind of easy sounds within the test that we were doing. And we found that, you know, all the children were fine 
identified these without any difficulty at the beginning of the test. But by presentation number 40, the kids with dyslexia, you know, were yeah. having much greater, or were making more errors in identifying mm. these really easy stimuli, right? So clearly, you know, you start wondering, well, is the test actually telling me something about the reality of their difficulties, or is it mm. that some of these difficulties are task-related or yeah. attention-related? Or... So I guess, you know, gradually I really felt it was much, you know, it was really important to be looking at, at speech and communication. And yeah. The, the, the communicative aspect of speech is important, and that means only not only looking at perception, but also production. Yeah. And so, you know, my work veered more towards production as well. Yes, mm. I, I mean, I'd, I'd say far a slightly different route, I've ended up in a very similar position mm. because mm. it's... Uh, I, when I do talks on laughter, I'm always like, oh, you know, yeah. 30 times more likely to laugh when there's someone else with you than when yeah, you're on yeah, your own. Yeah, of course, yeah, and yeah. Well, the same's true for talking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, yeah, yeah. Just, way, yeah. doesn't really happen outside of interactions. If you were to look at humans like we look at songbirds, you'd say, these are the situations when they, they sing, mm. and they sing when they're around other conspecifics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, and, the, and, you know, speech is so incredibly dynamic, right? The way that we speak is totally determined by the person we're speaking to, the situation, the... You know, so reading a sentence in 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 a booth is not representative of what we do in real life, really. I gave a talk in um, a speech production conference in around the CNS, so for cognitive mm -hmm. neuroscientists who um, there was many fewer people who look at speech production in that world, but there was there were they were all there, yeah. and I just gave an example of a BKB sentence being like that. The, they hang on. The clown had a funny Your face, a really yeah, yeah, lovely, yeah, yeah. clear thing. And then, and then me saying cause that was me, and then mm. me saying um, recorded from in the anechoic chamber when I'm talking to someone in between things happening. I just mm. said something like, oh, "I'm going to have someone to come in here with me," or something. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Not, it, it, <laughs> Everything's different. Everything, the, the yeah, syllable yeah. duration, the way things yeah, are articulated, yeah. just the inclusion of loads of sounds, just simply gone. And yeah, yeah, good, yeah. And whatever is happening here and, I said, well, and actually I was saying in that context because they were all very interested in error correction and I said look at the spontaneous speech mm. there's always nothing right yeah exactly and it's none yeah. of it being corrected mm. and it's all being understood exactly so, exactly you know exactly. We, do, we, we are asking the questions yeah. incorrectly here I think mm -hmm. so acoustic patterns are probably in a way the least <laughs> not quite the least <laughs> but you know or, or you know not maybe as important as context or whatever yeah. You know, yeah yes or, yes you know. definitely definitely yeah yeah it's, and I think, yeah, it's sort of, it's very, it is very interesting when you look at the brain response to speech, how there, and it took me ages to realise what this meant, but you get mm. as much, if not more, um, activation in the brain associated with all the stuff that's got nothing to do with the intelligibility of the speech. Right. And I spent many years trying to control all that away, until mm -hmm. I realised actually, that's probably telling us something, yeah, like the brain exactly. cares about the yeah. intelligibility of the speech, but it also cares about all the other stuff, mm. about who is talking, exactly, yeah, yeah, and all this sort of dynamic mm. element, and mm. the, the emo all the things that feed into that, from identity to emotion, and yeah, yeah. and the social aspects of who, you know, yeah, yeah, what kind of stuff being yeah, who you're exactly. talking to, absolutely. Yeah. If you were starting again now, would you do that. anything differently? I think I would have more of a, game plan I guess <laughs> I mean you know I think it's, everything's happened to me is pretty much accidental really yeah. you know and uh, I think nowadays you know you think much more from the beginning of your career okay you know um, I'm working towards this promotion this that and the other you know what do I need to do for this yeah. initial promotion or whatever I think you know at the time that was really not not um, 
you know, a factor really. And and also I think I've flitted from one thing to another quite a lot in my career. And I think it makes life more interesting, but I suppose mm. in a way, career-wise, maybe being the big fish in... Well, I don't know, well, actually. No, I don't know. There was a study that big came out recently. small pond or... That they yeah. looked at people who had changed research topics, yeah. particularly earlier in their career, mm-hmm. where there's a, they pay a, there's a cost at the time, yeah. um, but they tend to be more productive when they okay. are further in their oh, career well, because they have a wider mm-hmm. range of things that they built their research yeah, on, basically. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's certainly me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it was quite a long time getting to the stage where I could say I was reasonably successful, but that's <laughs> definitely, <laughs> I, 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 did, I yeah. did a lot of different things. Yeah, and at the yeah. time, I can remember people saying, you're making horrible mistakes here. You know, yeah, this is, yeah. mm. you've got to focus in on one thing. And I, I you know, well, mm. stop changing so often, I guess. But I, do, I have no regrets. But at the time, I suppose you could never really plan to do that. Like, I'm going to yeah. find different things interesting, therefore I'll do it. You know, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. Not, not really a game plan. Yeah. I think, and I think again, it's like a blessing and a curse of academic careers. There isn't. We're not like the police force or something with a really clear, yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, heart. Yeah, you know, this yeah. is how you navigate yeah. a career within this service. Mm-hmm. It is much more ad hominem and ad feminem in terms yeah, of what you bring yeah, yeah. to it and the things that you start enjoying, things that you get good at, mm. and things that someone else thinks you would be good at. Yeah, and you can't necessarily have a game plan for that. I think. No, but I think. I mean, I don't regret this kind of balance between, mm. I suppose, research, teaching and and being involved in other things, administration, yeah. international networks or whatever. Yeah. I think, you know, some people are much more research-focused and that works very well for them. But I think, for me, that's matched my skills probably better, really. Yeah. So. Well, you seem to have done really well across the board on that. I think. Certainly UCLs, you, mm. You've left UCL in a much better way well, than you know, found I don't it. Know. Well, I wouldn't say that. I haven't quite left yet. No, I, I, I realised even as I was saying that, that, that suggested you'd gone, which you haven't. Yeah, yeah. Oh, then, I, I, did you I go half-time? I did go half-time, yeah. yeah. And how are you finding that? Yeah, that's a challenge, you know, because, again, if you've been used to working, you know, long hours and yeah. whatever, and, and and suddenly, you know, you're the number of responsibilities you have and the work that you're doing is not necessarily halved mm. suddenly. So it yeah. takes quite a lot. You and, have yeah. to be strict. And of course I don't expect to exactly work you know, half-time because as a full-time academic you work many more hours than you yeah. do anyway. But you know, there has to still be a difference. To, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Can't yeah. Be so you have to find ways of not drifting to your yeah. office at home. You know, yes. You know, because you can't think of anything better to do. That's a very easy thing to do, really. So I'm hoping that this will be something we can pick up in a future podcast. Be somebody yeah. who is start. You know, for there's lots of different reasons why people yeah, do yeah. part time work, yeah. but um, someone who's been, you know, taking this from an early point in their career is sure. something I'll be very interested in, kind of getting to grips with and getting some ideas about. But um, is, is there anything else that you'd like to tell me? Because I think we're probably getting towards the end. No, I still think UCL is a great place to be mm. you know I've enjoyed working with so many great colleagues and you know and um, I suppose I wish I'd made better use of the flexibility that we're supposed to have <laughs> well I think you probably helped us get the flexibility so I, I don't that's... know I don't know but you know I somehow never quite managed myself to, to be flexible and I think maybe that goes back from very early in my career where you know we were expected to be in the lab every day all day yeah. and you know I never quite sort of got away from that mould yeah really. But, you know, yeah, so I would encourage people to make full use of... Definitely. You know, there's a, this flexibility. And there's a lot of support for it, really, and yeah, it's growing. Yeah. So. yeah, and I think work-life balance, the whole idea is, 
much more acceptable now or accepted. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it is important because you probably do better research when you're less stressed. Yeah. So No, it's critical, I think. it's. Uh, yeah. We let, there's a, there's a, I saw Sue Gavacol give a really good talk about the kind of the myth that doing incredibly long hours in work mm. somehow re- leads to yeah, better no. work, and yeah, it doesn't. Sure it You've got to be able indeed. to do, to, you know, for, I, I, I now, I think the only thing I've got wise about with age is I'm, I'm quite strict about kind of guarding bits of the day where I do things that have yeah. nothing to do with work and will be, you know, either just pure family time or exercise or something that I know will make me feel better. I will yeah, sleep yeah, better yeah, that yeah. night because exactly. I've, yeah, I've yeah. structured the day that way. Mm-hmm. Thank you very, very much for that. It's been a great pleasure. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been What Works. My name is Sophie Scott.